Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, we are here today. We're gathered together right here in this room uh, because we, we want to worship you. Lord, and we do that through our singing, which we've done Lord, we do that through prayer. We do that through study in your word. So, Lord, now as we open up your word to study and to hear what you have, would you speak with us this morning through these words, Lord, and, and touch our lives, change our hearts today in the ways that need to be changed, to convict us of the things, Lord, that need to be addressed. We thank you so much for this place and for this time and for the freedoms that we enjoy. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we uh, move into chapter 22, Moses is going to talk to and address a number of things um, that God uh, has already seen come to pass, even though these folks haven't even crossed over the Jordan River. Remember, he's going to be giving them some very detailed information about what's to come as if he's already seen it happen because, well, he has. Remember, we've talked about the idea that God stands outside of time, and so he sees the beginning from the end and everything in between at any point whenever he wants. And so he's able to speak in some detail about things that are going to come as if he's already seen them because he has. Even to them, they're going to be standing there going, really? Because we, we haven't even crossed over yet and you're already you know, talking about these things? And, uh, and the answer is yes. Uh, but also because there's some great value in us looking at these things as well. As I was reading through and preparing for this week, one of the main themes that I saw uh, in this chapter is uh, really the idea of selfishness. A lot of what we're going to see here is, is God is addressing either not being selfish or you are selfish, so don't do that anymore. That's one of the reasons um, why I wore my Not Awesome t-shirt today as a reminder to, well, to me, actually, that I am not awesome. Um, but Really, it should be printed backwards so that when I look in the mirror, it says not awesome and not tan um, emo swoo. <laughs> but maybe it's a reminder to you also that, I don't know if you know this or not, but you also not awesome. <laughs> this, this will make sense. If you're new here, this will make sense, right? Trust me. But as I thought about the idea of selfishness, a joke or two came to mind, and so I thought I would share those with you today as well. Um, do you know what a selfish cow says? Me. <laughs> Come on. You know, the most popular photo right now is called a, a selfie. Um, that's a photo that you take of you. <laughs> you. You take it of you. It's a selfie. You know, if you post something on Facebook that's like a picture with a caption and it's clever and funny and you put it on there hoping that people will see it and think that you're clever and funny, you know what that's called? It's a meme. You know how it's spelled? Me, me. That's how you spell it. Me, me. I have some other jokes that are uh, about being selfish, but I'm just going to keep them for myself. The other half of you are going to be like, oh, that's a... Later on, you'll get it at lunchtime, you'll understand it. Even the golden rule, you guys know the golden rule? Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. You can look it up and people don't, a lot of people don't realize that that's actually in the Bible. But even that, we've kind of taken and made about me. I'm going to treat you the way I want you to treat me. My motivation for treating you well is so that you treat me well. It's mostly about me. But I want to read to you where you can read about the golden rule. Um, this is um, out of Luke chapter 20. Uh, I forget where. Hang on. Luke chapter 6, okay? I'm just going to read along. And listen, this is Jesus talking to them. He says, but I say to you, <clears throat> I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away from your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away, 
Your goods do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive it back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners sinners lend to sinners and receive much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You see, what he's saying is, you are not the motivation for you doing good. The motivation for you doing good is because God said, do good to other people. Don't worry about if you get paid back good. Don't make it about you. In fact, the message is, everything is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Everything is all about me. (laughs) No, no, come on. (laughs) Hello? (laughs) It's not all about me because I am not awesome. I'm not awesome. Uh, Unfortunately, most most of the world walks around with a shirt that says this. By the way, the word awesome, that's God's word. The word was created to describe God, awesome. It shouldn't actually be used for anybody but God. In my life, I've gotten to the place where I don't ever use the word awesome unless I'm talking about God or something uh, uh, that has to do with something that God has done. Because in my life, I've gotten to a place, and maybe you can relate, where everything was awesome. You get a, you know, you're just like, you pick up a slice of pizza, and I'm from New York, so I fold it. And you take a bite, and you're like, oh man, this pizza is awesome. No, it's not. It might be really yummy, but it's not awesome. Not awesome. I'm not God. I'm very selfish, as a matter of fact. Many of the things that I do are selfishly motivated. I am not awesome. It's not about me. You're probably going to hear that throughout this message. It's not about you. Let's go on. Verse 1, chapter 22. You shall not see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. Now, first of all, when he's talking about brother, it's not your little brother. It doesn't even have to be somebody that you know. This is going to say whether it's a brother that you know or whether it's a brother you don't know. It's just somebody who is in, uh, it's going to come in into your sphere of influence, okay? But this is saying that if you are there and you're sitting there and you see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray, do not hide yourself from that. That's like if you see your your neighbor's ox going across your yard, you are not to do this. You need to get involved. Now, this isn't talking about ox like a pet or a lamb as a pet, this is actually a very valuable thing to your neighbor. At that time, an ox would be like their tractor. So if you're sitting at your house today and your neighbor's tractor rolls across your yard, God is saying, go and get the tractor. Don't turn a blind eye. Don't pretend, oops, not my circus, not my monkeys. You have to get involved. That's what this is saying. You can't just turn your blind eye to it because guess what? It's not just about you. You have to get involved. And if your brother is not near to you or you do not know him, then you shall bring it back to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it and then you shall restore it to him. And so imagine you're sitting there and you're at your house and you see your neighbor's ox walking away out of its pen and you're like, oh, my neighbor's not around. Too bad, his loss. No, God says go and get it. So you have to go and get the ox, and bring it back. And what does it say? You have to bring it back to your house, and what do you have to do with it? You have to take care of his ox until he shows up, and when he does, you could be like, oh, hey, I got your ox over here, by the way. And what you don't do is say, and here's the bill for everything that I did to take care of him. You simply say, here's your ox. He was running away. I just grabbed it or your sheep or whatever it is. They're going to later on say, your donkey or your garment or whatever it is. It's saying that you need to go and get that thing and bring it back and take care of it. And when he comes back to you, you give it to him. Now, what might that mean in your life? It might mean 
that you actually have to sacrifice something that you've got going on in order to help your brother. Like maybe you're sitting there and you're watching like the final game of the final four and you see your neighbor's ox walking across your yard. What do you have to do? You have to get up. You can't wait for the halftime or commercial and go and get that ox and bring it back to your living room. I'm mixing metaphors for sure and examples, but you know what I mean. It's like sometimes we need to lay down whatever it is that we've got going on for the sake of somebody else because it's not all about you. You get it? The Bible says that this is the true meaning of love that a a friend would lay down his life for another friend. Do you know that means that maybe you're going to be asked at some point in your life to literally lay down your life for somebody else? Probably not you here in Southwest Florida. Probably not. But what that might mean is that you have to lay down your life, meaning your plans, the things that you've got going on for the sake of somebody else. If somebody were to come to me today and say, wow, uh, we're moving today, could really use some help, what am I supposed to do? Pastor Jeff is available all afternoon. (laughs) I'm supposed to lay down my life and say, you know what, let me give you a hand with that. And let me get a couple of other guys too who I know will have to lay down their lives because I said it today as well. It has to remain with you. You have to take care of this thing. And so it's not, so maybe there's sacrifice. Maybe it's like, oh, I've got to feed this ox for the next 30 days until my neighbor figures out he's missing it and comes and gets it from me. You know, if, if we were here and, and you um, left your purse or your wallet after Sunday service, we would take it and we would hold on to it and we would take out all the cash and put it right in the offering box in the back of the church because I would assume that's what you would want us to do. And then when you came back, we would say, oh, here is your purse or your wallet, and and thank you very much for the support as well. Well, we would give it back to you. In verse 3, it says, you shall do the same with the donkey, and so you shall do with his garment, with, with, with any lost thing of your brother's for which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise, and you must not hide yourself. So um, this means that if you find something that isn't yours, you hold on to it until the person comes to you and says, hey, did anybody find a sheep? And you go, oh, here, as a matter of fact, I did, here it is. And you give it to them. This flies in the face of what we all know as finders, keepers, losers, weepers. There is no finders, keepers, losers, weepers in this uh, scenario. If you find something, you hold on to it until the owner comes back to get it, and then you give it back to them. So there's like, hey, has anyone seen the sheep? Like, ah, 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 here you go. Here's a, there you go. Yep, we found it. We do have a lost and found box, by the way. So if you've lost something, there's a box. Cesar will point you to it if you... There's no sheep in it. I'm just telling you right now. There's, there's, there's no sheep. Sorry. If you lost a sheep, you have to look elsewhere. Verse 4 says, So you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them, nor you shall surely help them lift it up again. Okay, so this is a little bit different. Um, This isn't like you're sitting on your front porch and you see your neighbor's donkey walking around and just goes and falls over. This actually means that they're, they're going along the road with their donkey and it's overloaded and their donkey falls over. Then you're supposed to go out and you're supposed to say, oh my goodness, let me help you lift up your donkey. And you, and you, you know, help them, you unload the donkey, and then you lift up the donkey with them, and then, and then you load the donkey back up. And probably what is, gonna, what is that going to entail most likely? Like, what's the problem at the beginning? The donkey had too much stuff on it in the first place. That's why it fell over, very likely. So you may have to go and get your donkey and come over and take some of the load and put it on your donkey, and then the two of you go to wherever your neighbor is going. And what a huge inconvenience that would be, don't you think? But isn't that what God is calling them to do? Because it's not all about you. Sometimes we're inconvenienced to be able to help out a neighbor, a brother, or a sister. So what does that translate here? It's not very likely that you're going to be sitting at your house and seeing your neighbor walk by with an overloaded donkey who falls alongside the road unless you live in the estates or at Ty and Tadil's house. (laughs) 
uh, it's probably, it's probably going to be more of a scenario like you see someone stranded alongside the road. Do you know, I, in New York, you have to get your car inspected every single year, right, Tom? Every year. It's total scam, total scam. You have to go in, and then they say, oh, well, this year, you know, your you know, cram shaft is, uh, so I was like, I don't know. I'm not a mechanic. They could say anything. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's just, I guess I have to fix that because the, otherwise they won't put an inspection sticker on your car and you can't drive it. You're completely at the mercy of the mechanic. Here, no inspection. I could literally like fix my car with twine and boards and drive it down the road and they would be like, I just need to know the color. What's the color? Okay, wood. <laughs> That's why you see, I think, so many cars. I mean, did, you mean when you're on the road, did you, I just see every day, every day I see cars alongside the road. I mean, drive from here to like Tampa, and it's just like, you know, car, car, car. It's because, I don't know, maybe we're not reminded to look at the, the whatever. You know what I mean. I believe that part of it is that God is saying, look, you know, there are going to be instances where I am going to call you to step in and help. Now, I told the first service this as well. I'm not saying you got to pull over and make yourself vulnerable to every single person along the side of the road who is seemingly has some kind of a trouble. Uh, ladies, if you're by yourself and it's that white van, just keep right on going, right on going. But if you sense that God is calling you to pull over and help somebody, then I would say, do it. Do it, but don't put yourself in danger. Uh, let's take it out of the car alongside the road and just think about it in terms of sometimes we know that people are struggling um, and could use a little bit of help, right? And we think, oh, I could help them, but it's really gonna, it's gonna, it's, I don't really have the time to call them. I really don't have the time to come and talk to them right now. I'm just, I, you know what? I'm sure somebody else is gonna help them out. I think, I think that God is calling us to be a little bit more about the people who we see or interact with in our lives. Can we try and do that? All right. Verse 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. All right. You good? Let's go on. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I, I grew up in the, you know, I was a kid in the 70s. Um, very, very young, very young kid in the 70s. And, uh, um, and I lived out in the middle of nowhere in this little country town with this little country church. And I remember as a kid, there being a whole debate between whether men, I mean, whether women should be able to wear pants, especially to church. Pants! To church, the big deal. Um, this verse, and, and often they would look at this verse, and this verse, but it's not talking about fashion, okay? Um, in fact, there are some really hot days here in the summer that I'm thinking a sundress looks really comfortable. <laughs> Ty? I, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that, but, but what this is talking about is an intentional blurring of the lines between genders, an intentional blurring of the lines between genders. And remember, it's as if God is, is talking to them there from what he sees right now going on, right now. Now, yes, there were some pagan rituals at that time where there were some men who would dress up in women's clothes to worship. But you have to understand, everybody at this time, no one was wearing pants at this time. Everybody wore some kind of robe or tunic. Most people had piercings and jewelry. And so it's not talking about those things. It's the intentional blend, blurring of the lines between genders. Now, do you know that on Facebook... There's at least 50 different gender designations. 50. Do you know what they are? I don't have any idea. 
I, I don't understand binary and fluid and this and, and, and whatever it is. I don't understand it. This is what I understand, okay? That they're saying that they want each user to be able to decide for themselves what their gender identification is and then use that. Here's what I know. God says that anything that is blurring the lines between gender is an abomination. That's what it says. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our own image. And it says that he made man, and that means humanity, not man, but humanity. He made humanity in his image, and he says, and he made them male and female. Let's see. One, two. Two genders, not 50. Two. God said he made everyone either male or female. It also says that he also says to his prophet Jeremiah that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Two really important things in that verse. Two important things. Number one, God says, before I formed you. So what did God do? He formed you. And before he did that, it says, I knew you. So he knows you, and he formed you, and God had two choices to choose from. He knew that you would either be a male or a female, and then he chose one of those for you, and that's how you were born. That is how you were born. God said, I decide for you whether you were born a male or a female. Now, what we're saying right now, our culture is saying is, no, 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 no. You, that's not true. That's not true at all. In fact, you could choose, and let's just stick to the two. Let's forget about the other 48 that Facebook seems to have come up with. Well, let's just stick to the two. What you're saying, what, what, what our culture is saying is, um, no, you get to choose. If you were born a male, you could still choose to be a female, or if you were born a female, you could choose to be a male, but God says that's, uh, that's uh, uh, an abomination. Why? Do you understand this is so important? This is why. Because what you're doing in that moment, if you say, well, I was born a man, but I, I feel like I'm a woman. I was born wrong. I'm, you're saying, God, even though you formed me, you knew me and formed me, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. And not only did you make a mistake, but I know better than you know. Because even though you made me a man, I feel like I'm more like a woman and I should be a woman. And you're saying to God, I get to decide in your place. I am putting myself in God's place. You know who said that? Lucifer. Lucifer, the devil, Satan, said, I will be greater than God. I will ascend above the throne of God. I will be greater than God. And God says, you're out of here. He knocked him right out of heaven, right down in the, and uh, he is destined for the pit of fire. And so now he comes into you and he comes next to your head and he says, hey, you know what? I know you were born a man, but don't you feel more like a woman? You can choose that, you know. You don't have to do what God said. You could be whatever you want to be because it's all about you and it's all about how you feel. And God says, it's, that's an abomination to me. He says, you, you are... You're, uh, to put it very crudely, you're giving God the finger at that point and saying, nope, doesn't matter what you say. It matters what I say because it's all about me and I get to decide. And God says, no, you don't. And it's an abomination. And that's what that verse is talking about. Not pants and dresses, but these intentional blurring of the line between the two gen genders that God created and selected for each one of you. There's one verse, by the way, here. Just one verse in this whole chapter, one verse. It is almost like God is saying, do we really, really we need to talk about this more than that? Is it just, can I just say, no, you know, there's men, there's women, you're assigned at birth, that's it. We're good? We're good. Let's move on to something really important, a bird's nest. <laughs> verse six, if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. 
You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may live long and you may prolong your days. That's a very weird and obscure verse right in the middle of this. But here's the thing. Um, Remember the idea of, you know, selfishness and this isn't all about you? This is, I, this is what I believe God is saying is, if you come along a nest, either in a tree or on the ground, so bird or duck, whatever it is, um, you could take the eggs to eat them, leave the mother. Take the eggs, leave the mother. Why? Well, it's like God is saying, don't be selfish. Don't take the eggs and the mother, because then what you've done is you've cut off any way for that particular nest to produce any food going forward. Just leave the mother who will continue to produce eggs after you've taken them. Just leave her. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Leave the mother there to produce eggs for the next person that comes along upon that nest. It's, just, it's not saying this is your own nest. This is say if you come along a nest. Well, don't take everything from that for yourself. Take the eggs. Leave the mother. Right? Who, who's hearing the godfather in their head right now? Take the cannoli. Leave the gun. I actually was thinking about <clears throat> you guys, Ty and Tennille, uh, because you have chickens. And so when you go out and you get the eggs from the chickens, you leave the chicken. Because it would be stupid to take the chicken and the eggs, because then guess what? No more eggs. Do you remember when, when God was talking about when you're besieging a city and you're there a long time and there's like fruit trees and he says, don't cut down the fruit trees because they provide food. It would be stupid. It's short-sighted. Use the non-fruit-producing trees to make ladders and, and ram, ramming poles. Leave these trees because they produce fruit. You know, be smart. Don't be selfish. Don't take everything. Take the eggs. Leave the chicken. Got it? We need to spend any more time on that? Because what does that say? It's not all about you. Excellent. You guys are catching on. All right. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet. For the roof that you may bring, not bring blood or guilt, uh, guilt or bloodshed on your household if anyone falls off of it. So well, let me just quickly explain um, the kind of the scenario right here is we're talking about houses with flat roofs. Not like we have these peaked roofs. These are flat roofed houses where they would often spend a lot of time, especially at night. They would go up and they would sleep on the, the roof because it was cooler than being inside these like mud brick houses that they built. But what Moses is telling them through the wisdom of God is that make sure that you build a parapet or a wall, kind of a railing around the roof so nobody falls off the roof. Um, if you've ever been to, and also in this, in this time, and especially in the cities, the houses would be sharing walls. And so there would be like, they'd be like connected and, and roofs would be like this. If you've ever been to like a big city like Manhattan or, I don't know, seen a Spider-Man movie, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about where all the roofs are like right there. And so... They're saying, you know, the roofs are accessible, people are on them, they're living on them, build a wall around the roof so that no one falls off. And you might think, well, that's silly, I'm not going to fall off the roof of my own house. Maybe, but what is this talking about? Not you, your neighbor, or a friend, or a guest who comes and goes up onto your roof who may not be familiar with your roof um, and may walk right off of the edge. So in order to keep from someone from falling off the roof of your house and dying, build a roof. Why? Because... It's not all about you. Are you starting to see a pattern here that God is trying to get to us? Like Suddenly, I'm starting to feel like, man, we're kind of a selfish people, aren't we? We do a lot of things motivated because of us rather than to consider others more highly esteemed than ourselves. I think there's a verse about that. In fact, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, esteem others more highly than yourself. That means think of other people before you think about yourself. You know what? It reminds me of this, like, well, I thought I was supposed to like look after numero uno. I don't even speak Spanish, and I know what that means. That means that I'm supposed to look after myself, right? I'm, I mean, if I, who's going to look after me if I'm not looking after me? But here's what God is saying is, I'm supposed to look after this person. This person is supposed to look after this person. This person looks after this person, and so on and so on. Eventually, it comes back to me. Someone will be taking care of me as well. Now, that's not my motivation. Obviously, we talked about that, right? But that's what God's plan is. If everyone is looking out for someone else, then everyone gets taken care of. Isn't that an amazing concept? But it falls apart because we're just like, me, me, 
Me. Me. <laughs> so when you build your house, build it in such a way that your neighbor won't fall off, even though you're very secure on your own roof. Make sure that they are also safe. Then he says in verse 9, you shall sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyards is defiled. And this is very simple. It's a very simple concept. He said, when you plant a vineyard, don't also plant like wheat or barley in your vineyard because the wheat or the barley might come up and defile the grapes that are growing in there. But there's a bigger concept here that is kind of explained in the next couple of verses as well is that idea of mixing things that are unalike. Unalike? Unalike. Unalike. Which one is it? Thank you. <laughs> she writes books and stuff. Unlike. <clears throat> um, because they'll become defiled. Paul will say the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he'll say, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Right? The idea is that you have different beliefs. You're not the same. And so if you mix two things that are unalike, then the thing becomes defiled. He's going to say right here um, in verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox, and, an ox and a donkey together. The idea is that an ox and a donkey, they have different strengths. They pull differently. In fact, the ox is much stronger than a donkey. So that if you put a yoke on two of them together, a donkey and, a, and an ox... The ox is going to pull in one direction. The donkey may try and pull in another, but he's going to be dragged along because the ox is stronger, and you're not going to get straight rows. It's going to be futile in effort to try and plow a field. In the much the same way, he says, look, if you're a Christian, you're not to marry a non-Christian because you don't believe the same things. You're going to be pulling in different directions. In fact, the strongest one is the one that is going to pull the hardest and is going to pull the weaker one along with it. So... Um, uh, it's been my experience that in situations where uh, um, a Christian and a non-Christian get married, even though the Christian feels like they're very strong, the non-Christian still pulls harder for whatever reason. Maybe it's just easier. There's less discipline in a selfish life, right? And so the Christian gets pulled along with the stronger of the two, uh, and then you, you have a, what, well, what's what he would call a defiled couple right there. So he says, don't marry a non-Christian. He also says in business as well, don't partner with a non-Christian. So think about it. If you're, a part, if you're partnered with a non-Christian and it comes down to some, I don't know, sketchy business dealings that may yield a greater amount of money, but you know is not the right thing to do, what's going to happen? Your non-Christian partner is going to be like, yeah, but come on, I mean, who's going to know? It's, I mean, look at the money that we're going to make. And you're just like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You do know, actually, you do know, don't, but he's pulling you or she's pulling you along, and, and, and we're warned against that. We're warned against it. He says, you shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. Again, it's just a way of him saying that keep it, keep it pure, keep it all wool or all linen. It doesn't mean that you can't wear linen undergarments and then a wool shawl. It meant you try to weave linen and wool into the same garment, not to do it. It's the same concept as having you know, a, a Christian coupled together with a non-Christian. Now, verse 12, it says, You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. Um, what God told them to do, um, and this is also in Numbers chapter 15, to sew tassels onto their garments as a reminder of the Lord's commands. Um, and you can read about this. It gives them a little bit more detail. But on their garments, they're supposed to sew these tassels that would hang down as a reminder of the Lord's commands. And they were supposed to weave some blue thread in there, which was supposed to remind them of heaven. Um, and so what, what would happen is, and we, remember we talked about this actually on, on Palm Sunday, uh, where they, it, it ceased being just sewing it onto their, their existing garments, but they started to create these prayer shawls. Um, that were very dear to them that they would wear and they would have these tassels on them. But it began to become uh, something even more uh, perverted. Uh, Jesus will address it um, and when he sees the Pharisees and he says, you see, everything that they do, they do to be seen by men. He says, they make their phylacteries bold, uh, wide and he says, and their tassels are long. 
And so what he was saying is that these Pharisees, they wanted to be seen as so holy. Like, well, look how, look how much I remember the Lord's commands. And they're just showing their like, tassels are really long. And somebody's like, oh, those are pretty good tassels. But look at these tassels, and they're even longer. And another guy comes in, and he's got these tassels that are like dragging on the ground behind him. And they're like, he was like, I really remember the commandments of the Lord. And they had these like phylacteries, right? And it wasn't that they were more uh, spiritual, but they wanted people to see them and think that they were more spiritual. And they had these phylacteries, which were these leather boxes that they would strap to their forearms and their forehead when they would pray. And uh, some guys, they were just getting like, like these really big, like the bigger the box, the more spiritual I am, clearly. And so they had these huge boxes and and it was like, be imagine these guys with these big black leather boxes strapped to their heads and these long tassels. They're just walking around and they're, and uh, Jesus would say, they're doing that so other people will see them and think that they're very religious. Um, and um, phylactery is a really fun word to say. Let's all say it together. Ready? Phylactery. Isn't that fun? Everybody's awake though, right? All right. We kind of we hear this situation and we laugh a little bit about these like long tassels and these big phylacteries, but, but don't we kind of do the same thing? I mean, I have a fish on my car and a frame around my bumper, around my license plate that says, don't worry, God's got it. You know, and it's kind of a symbol. It's like, well, I am a Christian. I should have a fish on my car, but some people have like, many fish on their car. Like I saw somebody that has a fish on their car and then like a bunch of little fish behind it and, uh, you know, crosses, things hanging down and all, all, you know, like all of our, you know, decked out in our Christian t-shirts and our bracelets and our necklaces. And I'm not saying that stuff is bad, but make sure that you're wearing that and you have that for yourself. This is the only time. This is the only time that it can be about you. <laughs> no, that, that is for you, not so that everybody will see how righteous and holy you are, because that's what Jesus was saying. They had these long tassels and big phylacteries so that other people could see them and think that they were amazing, rather than for them to be actual reminders of the commandments of God, which is what he told them to do in Numbers and is reiterating right here. Get it? All right. I need some water for this next passage. Okay. All right, I'm going to read through several verses. Just read along with me, and it's all going to be fine. <clears throat> there are some days, by the way, that I really wish that we weren't a expository church, that uh, I could be like, okay, we're done for today, and next week we'll be in Deuteronomy church. Okay, here we go. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found that she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city of the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now as he has now he has charged her with shameful conduct saying I found your daughter was not a virgin and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him and they shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel and he shall be uh, and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all the days of his life. Okay. All right. This is what's going on here, okay? Just keep up. This guy is married to this woman. Now, this isn't the next day that they're talking about. At some point in their marriage, he decides, I don't want to be married to her anymore. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and accuse her of not being a virgin when we got married, as she was promised, as it was expected. That way, the, the city elders will take her, and if she's found guilty, they'll take her to the, to the house of her father, and they'll kill her with stones, and I'll be free from this marriage, and won't everything be all great? And that's what he's hoping to do, and you can see what a really despicable human being he is in this case, because if it was a false account, that he, he's trying to do it even though it's false in this, in this scenario. He is trying to get out of his marriage by accusing his wife of not being a virgin when they got married as it was to be and as he was promised. Knowing that, 
if it is found out that she's guilty or else if they can't prove that she was a virgin, that she'll be executed. That is a despicable man in that scenario. But it says that if the parents can bring out the proof that she was a virgin when they got married, then he is taken and punished, and in Hebrew it says beaten, and then has to pay double the normal dowry to the father, and then he is never able to divorce this woman, which, hey, sounds like a great deal for her, right? I mean, that's going to be really great for their relationship going forward. Um, well, I'll get to that in a second. The evidence here, here's the thing. Um, she was to be a virgin when she got married. It was highly valued, highly valued. And it was promised to this man that this woman that he was marrying was a virgin. And so um, the evidence that they're talking about was on the, on the wedding night, they would spread this sheet on the bed, and in their first instance of intercourse, there would have been some slight bleeding that would get on this sheet that... <laughs> Sorry, I had to look somewhere else. Um, that they would bring out um, and give to the parents of the, of the woman that they would then hold on to as evidence that she was indeed a virgin when they got married. In fact, it's even, it's even more weird is that the, the bridegroom's friend and the groom would literally be waiting outside the room to go in as soon as it was done, to go in and be like, scoop up the thing and take it to the parents right away because it was very a very valuable piece of evidence. It's weird to us because we would never do that, ever, 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 ever do that. But that is what they're talking about is like when the parents say, no, no, he's accusing her of not being a virgin, but here's the evidence, and they would spread it out in front of the, I mean, that's a great day for that woman. I mean, this whole scenario, I mean, how, she must just be like, oh my gosh, I can't. So embarrassing. But that's what's going on right here. That's, that's, they would bring it out. Now, it says, and if it wasn't true, if it wasn't true, if they could prove that she was a virgin, then he had to, they would beat him, uh, and then he had to pay twice, or 100 shekels of silver, twice the dowry. Now, the dowry was the uh, price that a man would pay to the woman's father. And what he actually was supposed to do with that was hold on to that money in case something happened to the woman's husband that he could then give her that money and she could provide for herself or be taken care of, right? Many times, though, the fathers would just take it and spend it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even, so there'd be nothing. If their, if their daughter's husband was killed or if he divorced her and left her, she had nothing. That's what the dowry was for. And so they were saying, here, you have to pay the father now twice the amount of the dowry that he's going to hold on to her, but you can never divorce her, by the way. Now, that sounds like not a great deal for the woman, right? I mean, why would she want to stay with a guy who tried to kill her, basically? But you have to understand that this is God's way of providing for this woman beyond this situation. God cares very much for women. And so all throughout the Bible, you see him providing for their welfare in one way or the other. And this was a way of saying, because if she didn't have a husband or if she were uh, alone, she would have a very hard time providing for herself. And then God was saying, look, you aren't able to divorce her. Now, if you die, there's a dowry set aside for her, but you have to provide for this woman. Now, going forward, that's, that was the, the command that was given. Now, verse 20 says, but if this thing and evidence of virginity is not found for the young woman. Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put evil, uh, put away the evil from among you. All right, so if it can't be shown that she was a virgin, or that's the implication is that she wasn't a virgin when she got married, that they would take her out to her father's house, outside her father's house, and they would stone her to death because of that. That seems really harsh, but I need to explain this. You have to grasp this because our culture has lost the value that God has placed on virginity and sexuality. It's gone. Gone. But I need to, we need to talk about this. But God made a way, this is incredible, God made a way for his creation to reproduce itself. 
And in many cases, it's through sexual reproduction. But he took it to a deeper level for humanity because sex wasn't just for reproduction, but it was for intimacy between a man and a woman. In fact, he made it such an intense bond that he refers to it as two becoming one flesh. Two becoming one flesh. Sometimes when I uh, perform a wedding, the couple will do what's called a sand ceremony. Um, There's other things. There's the knot, you know, and uh, the unity candle. Um, But the sand ceremony is really incredible because it has two, two containers of sand, let's say blue and pink, okay? And what the couple do is they take this, these two bottles of sand and they pour them together into this one container that was empty. And as they combine together, they either overlap or they mix together. And you've got blue sand with pink sand. It kind of makes this purpley colored sand. And it's really this incredible picture uh, of these two lives coming together that are not being able to be separated, combined in one vessel, which is like Christ, right? Two combined into one, Christ holding them all together. But it's also a very good illustration of his uh, design for uh, a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, because you've got two vials of sand poured together. Those, those grains of sand become impossible to separate after they've been poured together. And in a marriage, they're not supposed to be or intended to be separated. But if you're looking at any kind of a sexual relationship between a man and a woman who are not married, you're combining those grains of sand together, and it is virtually impossible to separate them after that moment. That sand is never pure again. And God said it is such a an extreme level of intimacy that you just don't get it. So in order for you to really appreciate, and he's talking to them, especially at this point, in order for you to really appreciate just how important this is to me, God says, and to you emotionally, I'm going to put some boundaries in place around sex, and I'm going to um, put some consequences in place as well when those boundaries are crossed. Now, since the beginning of time, almost, since sin entered the world, the idea of a sexual intimacy has been changed and perverted and, and, and brought to a level where it's just, rather than it to be this incredible, precious, intimate gift that God has given us between a man and a woman, it's become a casual encounter. But the emotional impact has never changed. The emotional impact was designed to to unite a husband and a wife together inseparably. Um, But now it's just something casual, but the impact is the same. You will never have a sexual experience where you'll be able to completely separate yourself from that person cleanly or purely. There will always be residue. And imagine it happens over and over and over again, which often does, especially in our culture. We hear about it all the time. Over and over and over again how broken and torn up. I once heard someone explain it like gluing two pieces of plywood together and then ripping them apart. It's messy. It's never going to be two clean, pure pieces of plywood together anymore. And God says, it's so impactful. It's so important. It's so important to me, God says, that I'm going to put boundaries around it. And that's what you're looking at, right? This is what we're looking at right here. These are the boundaries that he's saying. He's trying to impress upon them that it's not just a good idea. He says, do this so that you put evil out away from you in the camp. He's saying that, it, that it's so important. Now, one of the things that I love here is that we study the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. This section that we're looking at right now helps me to understand just the kind of impact that Gabriel had on Mary when he came to her and said, you are going to be found with child. You know, if you read that in Luke, you can see that before it even calls her name, it says there was a virgin and the angel came to the virgin and it calls her a virgin three times. It establishes without any question that Mary was a virgin while she was betrothed to Joseph, her husband. Betrothal, by the way, was like being married at the time, only there was no physical contact at all for a year. 
so that you were betrothed to your husband or to your wife. You didn't live together. Your wife lived with her father and their family. You were married, but you weren't married. You, there was no physical contact at all. You didn't live together. But if you wanted to break that engagement, you had to get a divorce. That's betrothal. So it was serious. Gabriel comes to Mary, and he says, you're going to be found with child. And she says, how is it possible? I've never been with a man before. And she says, the Holy Spirit's going to overcome, come on you, and you're going, to, you're going to be with a child. Now, what Mary knew right in that moment was that everybody would know that she had not been with her husband. In fact, she wasn't married yet, but she was somehow pregnant, and they were all going to assume that she had been with another man, and so she wasn't a virgin. And then what would the consequence be? She could be taken out to the gate of her father's house, and she could be stoned because she was unfaithful, sexually engaged with someone other than her betrothed um, before they were married. And yet she said what? Here I am, your maidservant. Do, do whatever your word says. Man, that's incredible. Does that help you to understand, Mary? Here's the thing. You read this in Luke. The angel says to him, he's going to be called the son of the most high God. Um, he's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be all these things, which meant he had to be born to do those things. So what did that mean to Mary? What must she have thought in that moment? God says that he's going to be all these things. That means that he's going to have to be born. That means that at least I'm not going to be killed until he's born. And so just like Abraham, we talked about last week, was able to take his son to the mountain because he believed God's words, Mary also believed the word of God and was able to say, here I am. Here I am. It comes back to, do you believe what God's word says? Do you believe it? Remember Jesus says, if you believe in me, You'll have everlasting life. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Amen. By the way, also, I mean, Joseph doesn't get a lot of credit, but Joseph was a pretty good guy. It says in the Bible that once he found out that she was pregnant, he was going to put her away quietly and divorce her. He wasn't going to drag her out in front of everybody so that she would be killed. And then the angel came and said, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's all going to be good. And then he was okay with it. But even before the angel came to him, he was going to quietly take care of this whole situation rather than drag her out. I mean, he was a pretty good guy, don't you think? I don't think we give Joseph enough credit. Okay, 20. But if this thing is true and evidence of virginity are not found for the young woman... Oh, I read that, okay. 22, if a man is found lying with a, a woman married to a husband... And then both of, them sh- both of them shall die. That man, the man that, that lay with the woman, and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. And so this is talking about um, adultery. This is saying that there's a man and there's a woman and she's married and he comes and they're together. And if they're found out or if they're brought out, then both the man and the woman are guilty and both of them should be put to death. Do you remember a story in the New Testament, where they drag out, the Pharisees drag out this woman before Jesus, and they throw her down on the ground, and they say, what should we do? She was found in the very act of adultery. Jesus, what should we do? And, and Jesus looks at her, and the story is that he kneels down, and he writes something in the dirt. And what did he write? Who knows? What did he write? That may be the only question that I ask when I get up to heaven and be like, Jesus, just what is it that you wrote? Because everybody has a theory. What did you write down there? You know what I, you know what I was thinking this morning? You know what he wrote? Where's the man? Because this is saying that a man and a woman were to be brought out and killed. And they said in that story, she was caught in the very act. And last time I checked... There would have to be two people involved in that, a man and a woman. So where's the man? If she was caught in the act, where's the man? Where's the man? I don't even know if it's true that she was, now that I think about it, maybe she wasn't engaged in some kind of adulterous affair. She was just a prostitute that they pulled out in front of Jesus to try and trick him. It says they were trying to test him, trying to trip him up. And maybe Jesus wrote in the sand, where's the man? 
Because it says that he said to them, okay, whoever is without sin, you can throw the first stone. And it says from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they walked away. Because, you know, you've got those young guys and you're like, come on, this is my first one. I'm ready to go. And the older guys are like, oh, man, okay, I'm out of here. No one ever saw me. And then he looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Because they had all gone, all of them. Now, if a, woman, if a young woman is a virgin, is betrothed to a husband, remember what that means, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he, was, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Okay, that, if you just read that one verse and you're just like, that doesn't really seem fair. I mean, just because she didn't cry out. But you have to, I have to understand all of this, right? Um, and it says that she was in the city. If she was betrothed, she's supposed to be living in her father's house. It's not like she's like going out and having a girl's night out one night in the city. They just didn't do that. So part of it is she's in a place where she's not supposed to be. All right? She's in the city. But the other part is saying this. The city is so crowded that had she wanted to be saved, she simply needed to cry out, and she would be saved. That's what this says, that because she did not cry out, it's assumed that she was a willing party in the, these two getting together. Does everybody get that? Make sense? That's why they're saying if they were found together in the city, then both of them are guilty. But in the next one, it says, if a man finds a betrothed woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then the only man who lay with, then, sorry, um, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Different situation. Now she's in the countryside. It's going to say, because she called out and nobody could hear her. She wanted to be rescued, but there wasn't anyone there to rescue her. Right here, you were talking about right here, is he rapes her. This is, he forcefully took her without her consent. And they're saying, if that happens, then that man is brought to the city and he is executed when it's found out. Do you know that up until 1977 in this country, Rape carried a, a capital punishment. You could be executed if you were found guilty of rape. But in 1977, the Supreme Court said that that was grossly disappropriate um, for rape. Did you know that since 1977, the cases of, of rape have risen higher and faster than any other major crime in this country? Because there is no real consequence anymore. What he says is, you, you do this in order to put away the evil from among you. We stopped doing that, and the evil just kept going. Not just kept going, but it rose faster than we could have imagined. You can look that up. I didn't make that up. But then it says in verse 26, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is, the, there, there is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so in this matter. So you know what that says? Do you see that? It's saying that rape, God considers rape as bad as murder. Rape is as bad as murder. That's what God says right here. That's why he assigns the same consequence to it. We've done away with all of it. For he found her in the countryside, and, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. 28, if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all of his days. And so this is, she's not betrothed, she's just there. Um, most commentators believe that she's a willing party here, but uh, the idea is that they got together, um, they were involved sexually, and it's found out, and it's, uh, okay, you're married now. It's like what we would call shotgun wedding, right? It's found out that they've been together, the rule is, now you're married. Um, you have to pay the dowry, even though, I mean, in this case, you know, and it's... It's almost like he was saying, oh, I was just overcome with passion in the moment. I don't really want to marry her. And the, the law would say, oh, that's too bad. You made your choice. 
you know, and now, now they're together, and he is not able to divorce her. Not that he has to pay the, the dowry price. He has to pay the price to the father, then they're married, and not just that, they're not permitted to be divorced. All of this was put into place so that this would, you know, help you to think through these decisions before you make bad decisions, before you are overcome with passion and you run off to the woods, you understood that if we're found out, we're together forever, whether we like it or not. That's what God was trying to say. You know, uh, it's not that I want you to have miserable lives. I want you to make good choices before you do these things. Is that something we can all agree on? Do you think God wants us to make good choices? Seems like that could be the, the other theme. It's not all about you because you're selfish, and make good choices. You know, I'm going to save incest and castration for next week. <laughs> Look, I, I, I do want to say this. Over and over again, we, we, we hear this talks about couples, and oh, here's a, you know, you can't get divorced. You can't get divorced. You can't get divorced. And, and uh, there's a lot of talk about divorce. And God, God really reminded me of something. Um, I'm going to read this section to you. And it's, in, it's Jesus um, speaking in Matthew chapter 19. Just, I'm going to read along. Or I'm going to read this. Just follow along. It says, The Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Um, you know, there were, at this time, two schools of thought. There were two rabbis that taught different things. One was very conservative, and he said, the only reason that you can divorce your wife is in the case of infidelity. But there was a more liberal uh, rabbi who taught, well, no, it can't mean that. It must mean for other reasons, which mean any, any really, any other reason um, that makes her unclean, and then they de would define unclean as, um, like, she burnt breakfast. Uh, <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but they got to the point where it's like they could basically give any reason for why their wife was no longer fit to be um, their wife. And so Jesus, you know, had a way of appealing to everybody, people who thought one way and people who thought the other way, but he was able to bring them all together. And they were hoping to come in and divide him. And they say, well, if he says this, then this group won't like him. If he says this, then this group won't like him. And so they come in and they say, uh, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And then they said to them, why then did Moses command to give certificates of divorce and to put her away? And Jesus said to him, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. See, God's plan for marriage is not divorce. His plan for marriage is once, those, once that sand is mixed, they stay mixed. God never planned for divorce. God, Jesus here says, the reason that you can get divorced is because you're selfish. Now, look, that's a very broad statement. So, so if, it's, if you have some other reason, like, uh, like what the Bible does permit, um, then we could talk about that. But, but mostly what we see, especially like in this state, we have a no-fault, like a no-fault law that says you can just get divorced for whatever. And it's usually because I just don't want to be divorced. I don't want to be married anymore, or they burnt my eggs, or whatever it is. It wasn't God's plan. God said, I'm making it so that you are inseparable. Let no man separate, it says. Let no man separate. It wasn't God's plan. But it was also part of God's plan to say, if you have done this, or if you have sinned in any way in your life, there is forgiveness available. Because I sent my son to take on all sin, to go to the cross, to die and be resurrected. There is forgiveness. There's restoration that can be had. Hope is not lost. Amen? If you have something that you now uh, are struggling with and thinking, oh, man, I, you know, I, 
I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. I invite you to come on up at the end of the service and pray. And, and let's pray. Let's pray for cleansing. Let's pray for forgiveness. Let's pray for restoration to the Lord. You don't want anything separating you and God. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time and in your word. Oh, together, Lord, I just ask that uh, you work in the hearts right now of every single person here. If there's anything, Lord, that needs to be confessed and forgiven, I pray, Lord, that you would lay on them, that you would press in on, on whomever. Lord, so hard that it's bubbling up. Lord, I thank you so much. For your word, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus, who died for me, forgave me of my sins. Lord, came into my heart and is sanctifying me every day. Lord, I thank you for making a way for me to be in the presence of a holy God, not just today, but for all eternity. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, Lord, that they would be just compelled to come and tell someone this morning up front here that they need to be saved from their sins. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day, the day that you've made. In your name we pray. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.